Well, hello, everyone. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Um, let's just make sure this works. So, hopefully. Good. All right, so um, I'm going to speak about this technology we call artificial intelligence. What is it? What can it do? And mainly about the, the many challenges that, that, I mean, it's a powerful new technology. Uh, I want to talk about the challenges it's going to present us with. So in the first part, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to explore some issues that artificial intelligence might have for our jobs, um, some issues of safety, and I'm going to try to anticipate the effect it, it might have on our societies. Um, all through, I'm going to keep an eye on what a Christian response to artificial intelligence should be. Uh, then in the second part, uh, which is up there, uh, I'll try to give some idea of, of of how artificial intelligence, or rather really machine learning, works, and then explore the possibility that we might one day build a conscious machine, you know, a real artificial being. So, let's go. So artificial intelligence, or, or AI, and I'll probably say that all through because it's easier, will change how we travel, how we learn, how we work, and how we socialize. It'll change our economy. It will change how we relate to our children and to our elderly, <clears throat> and it will change how we view ourselves. I mean, AI could do a huge amount of good, but it, like all technologies, it could also do just as much harm. So I'm going to pose a lot of questions in the next hour or so, but I, sorry, I don't have many answers to all of them. Uh, the, the questions are, are new, and I don't think we can even be sure that we're asking the right questions yet. The Bible, not surprisingly, doesn't give us any explicit guidance on, on um, such advanced technology. Um, it wasn't around when, when the Bible was written, obviously. But it does tell us a great deal about our own natures and our responsibilities in the world and to one another. I'm sure, therefore, that great changes like this need a Christian outlook. We need to consider seriously what the consequences of this sort of new technology will be for society and for ourselves as humans in a less human world and for our relationship with God. Hopefully there'll be enough food for thought in what follows to encourage uh, you all to improve on my thoughts and ideas. So what is artificial intelligence? This term relates to a type of computer program uh, that can learn. Learn. That means that rather than merely performing a list of definite operations decided by a programmer, uh, there's quite a few of us in here who pro call ourselves programmers, but data from the real world is used to train that program to respond in a desired way. <clears throat> I mean, for example, an AI might be used to detect a person or a vehicle in the images from a camera or to understand speech, like this. Hopefully this will work. We've all done this. Well, not all of us, but some of us. Hey, Siri. Siri, are you smart? We intelligent agents don't really undergo IQ tests, but I scored off the charts in the Zoltax sit in Egakari. Now you know. <laughs> One of my favourites is... Hey, Siri. It's not going to... Oh, sorry. Hey, Siri. I'm listening. Siri, Siri, on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? My friend are the fairest of all. So, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, no argument about that from now on. <laughs> right. 
Right, <laughs> right okay. <laughs> Siri, for all its humour, um, isn't a person. Right? And artificial intelligence is not artificial consciousness. So this is a big question. Is an artificial mind possible? And I'm going to deal with that in part two. Many people don't think so, either in principle or in practice, like the uh, math mathematical physicist Roger Penrose, and uh, his thoughts come up a bit later as well. But no one knows for sure, so I'm going to talk about that a bit more later on. Right. Meanwhile, AI is already affecting our lives. Um, most of us have used Google or something similar. Have you noticed how the adverts online seem to chase you from one website to another? Yeah? Well, that's because AIs are used to help you search the internet, and they uh, try to understand what you're looking for. Uh, and that way, adverts for things that it thinks you're interested in and will spend your money on can be, can be directed at you. And it's following you, right? It's a bit spooky. Uh, but AI agents like Siri and Alexa uh, will, will improve. Um, inevitably. But then there are also weapon systems, and there are space probes, and there are Mars rovers. They're all forms of robot and, and have an AI element in them. And AIs, AIs are even making scientific discoveries. This popped up the other day. Um, this is a, a neural network which found an eight-planet system somewhere. It's in a popular, popular astronomy magazine. And it was, this is from data from the Kepler satellite. It was fed into an AI, and up popped another couple of planets in this system. Fantastic. And then there are vacuum cleaners and lawnmowers. Has anyone here got one of those vacuum cleaners or lawnmowers? One there? Yeah? Well, you've been warned. <laughs> Come on. Another click. <laughs> Need a better automation tool? <laughs> Choose Kaseya, the world's smartest IT automation solutions. Oh, sh... Right. <laughs> so, now... Um, this is a very good book, uh, and I recommend it to everybody here. You should all go and get yourself a copy. I think we've got a few on the bookstore. Um, and in this, Nigel Cameron uh, identifies six types of robot. There are androids or humanoids. That's robots that look like people. 
Um, there are machine-like robots like cars and vacuum cleaners and factory robots. There are toys and pets, and they sort of fit in between the two in some ways, don't they? There are things we call plain old algorithms. I suppose Siri is one of those. And then there's the Internet of Things. We could call that Skynet. And it, yeah, <laughs> well, perhaps not. For anyone who hasn't seen the Terminator films, Skynet is a weapons control system that becomes self-aware, takes over the world, and the consequences involve Arnie Schwarzenegger and loads of guns. We'll come back to that. <laughs> there, oh, that's a surprise. Um, there will be big benefits. Dangerous work will be done by machines instead of people. And a machine can go places that we could never send a human, right? Inside um, that building, there we go, that's what I was looking for. Inside that building is the remains of the Chernobyl sarcophagus, which is obviously one of the most contaminated sites in the world. And it's deadly to humans. Robots are going to dismantle that reactor over the next few decades and make the site safe again. Robots could also be used for mine clearance, you know, or mining, two different meanings of the word mine. Um, and also, domestic robots could be invaluable in keeping us safe in our, ha in our houses, especially if we're elderly or we're infirm. It's by keeping an eye on us, they could call for help if we get ill. They could also become our companions. And if you think that's odd, that people will ease their loneliness by talking to a robot. Uh, in Japan, people have been very um, amenable to, to um, talking, to, to, to getting on with their robots. And they, they, it's sort of, I, I, maybe it's something about Japanese culture that they're, they're sort of more friendly towards this thing and that sort of technology. But they do actually treat their, their robots as friends. And they're not that brilliant yet. This is what you, that's a bit bright, but this is what you can buy today. It costs $459. Uh, it's a bit aggressive looking, I think, but, uh, but you can buy that right now. Um, right, so there are risks and there are ethical issues. Uh, robots and, um, and AIs will take away human work, and we're going to have to find something else to do. There'll be profound effects on us and our societies. I mean, if you think mobile phones have changed us, which they have, just wait and see what an AI is going to do. Then there are safety questions, which we must think about. There is the question of who's responsible when, when they go wrong, when, when people get hurt, perhaps. And then there's also the treatment, of the, the question of how we treat the robots themselves. You know, we're, we're supposed to be behaving in an ethical way ourselves, aren't we? And that will be reflected in the way we treat our servants. So we've got to consider how we will approach these sort of ethical questions with regard to artificial intelligence, just as we have to with any novel technology. We can either treat the issues in a purely utilitarian way, you know, weighing the costs and the risks against the expected benefits. Like this, we consider only the end results. And how we get there is of little consequence. On the other hand, a Christian approach is to understand that humans have a particular appointed role in creation. We bear God's image, so we have a special dignity, and are commanded to steward creation, but not supplant God's place as creator and Lord. We must be careful not to play God by attempting to create beings in our own image. With an understanding of fallen human nature, we should be beware that the consequences of doing so would be catastrophic. 
I think I said could be, but it's, well, I think it would be. We know what happens when we, when we step over the line. So as we examine some of these ethical issues that AI brings up, I ask that you keep these two approaches in mind, the utilitarian and one which values our image, um, uh, our, uh, our, our place as, God, as bearers of God's image. Okay. So some of the big issues regarding AI and robots have been rehearsed in f- fiction and film. Um, back in the 1950s, the, the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov wrote a whole series of stories that became iRobot. And he conceived three laws of robotics that were pre-programmed into the robot's brain and would make sure that they are safe and moral. Here they are. It's a bit hard to read on here, but uh, I won't read the whole things out. But roughly speaking, a robot may, may not harm a human or allow a human to be harmed. A robot must always obey a human, provided it doesn't come cause the person to be hurt, uh, another person to be hurt or a person to be hurt. And a robot, robot must protect itself, provided it doesn't... Um, disobey the other two laws. And Will Smith's film, which was called iRobot, uh, based, on that, on the, it's one, based on Asimov's story, Little Lost Robot, tells the story of a detective search for a robot whose three laws have been tampered with. It's a great idea. It's a good film. Unfortunately, those three laws, as conceived by Asimov, are not really possible. We, we could not guarantee that they could always be, um, that they could always be uh, obeyed. Now, three other films explore the meaning of personhood in the context of artificial intelligence as well. There are others, but these are three that I picked on. There's AI and Bicentennial Man, for example. Bicentennial Man was also inspired by an an Asimov story. A robot played by the amazing Robin Robin Williams gradually makes himself human and faces a choice. To be fully human, fully alive, will he do what all of us must do and die? Terrific film. Um, and in AI, there's a, you have a robot facsimile of a little boy is created to, to replace the deceased child. Um, it, or he, David, is created specifically to love and be loved. But he's too real. But anyway, it moves on from there. Oh, that's David. And that's Robin Williams, believe it or not. Right. So, and then two others, um, Ex Machina and Blade Runner, both fantastic films. Blade Runner is my favourite film, and we'll come back to that later on because I couldn't resist it. These, these uh, explore matters of safety and slavery. Um, so, uh, again, terrific films. Go and watch them. Right, and that's Blade Runner. Right, okay, so let's get on to the main meat of what we're going to talk about. So, issue one is they're taking our jobs. Um, the uh, impact of AI is, is going to be the same as that of... Is the impact of AI going to be the same as that of, um, of uh, industrial mechanisation or computer automation? So similar things have happened before. Uh, industrial mechanisation, the first industrial revolution, caused a lot of human work to become obsolete because machines could do the work cheaper. Two things had... Uh, had sorry... Two things happened um, as a result of this. Goods became much cheaper. Great. Many people became a lot poorer as their labour was no longer needed to make those goods. And as a result, there were decades of deflation and a consequent drop in demand. So the economic effects were not all positive at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Eventually, new types of work emerged. 
Early in the 20th century, mass production brought about a huge growth in productivity and the creation of our modern consumer-driven economy and society. And in my working life, computer automation has taken this even further. The currency of our economy, the whole world's economy now, is information. For example, a mobile phone. One of the most complex devices ever made it literally has billions of microcomponents encapsulated in a few silicon chips. It's designed in offices, like the one I work in, distributed all over the world. The data from these offices is combined, or sorry, are combined, converted to patterns and used to manufacture parts in a chip fabrication plant somewhere else in the world, somewhere else on the planet. And they're then shipped to a factory, which is usually in China, where everything's put together, and then it appears under your Christmas tree. Now, thousands of people are involved in that process, right? But per component, it has to be one of the most efficient manufacturing processes ever devised because there really are billions of components in these things. Much of the conversion process is automatic. It's performed by computers, which are built from the very same types of parts that they're making, which is a bit strange. They're sort of making themselves, not quite, but nearly. And all the time, the goods have become ever cheaper. So manufacturers have to keep adding features to keep the price up and to tempt you to go and buy a new one. We're familiar with that. We're now in the throes of what's been called the fourth industrial revolution. And the optimistic outlook, uh, I, I rather like this diagram, because uh, it sort of shows how each one in each stage has gone on, but um, let's not dwell on it. The, um, the optimistic outlook is that we should probably expect a similar outcome to the very first industrial revolution. At the very least, major, re, major economic readjustment, not necessarily all good or all bad, and eventually new types of work will emerge. The pessimistic outlook says that humans will no longer have any work to do and we'll be impoverished, idle, bored, and economically useless. So what jobs could AIs radically change or replace altogether? Well, taxi driver. Sorry, these, the words are a bit small here. This job's days look numbered already. I mean, Uber are thinking of, of, of replacing all their drivers with robots, essentially. Uh, but, you know, if the cars are safer driving themselves, why would you need a taxi driver or a driver anyway? Right? So they're already being worked on, being phased out. Nurses. Now, that might be a bit shocking, but if you take the routine and menial aspects out of nursing, maybe AIs could enable nurses to spend more time with their patients. That might make things better. It's hard to see how a robot could quite have the human touch that a real human nurse would have. It's, it's hard to see how you'd eliminate that completely. How about a domestic servant? We don't, I don't think many of us here have got domestic servants. Um, but but, uh, but we've already got vacuum cleaners, and they're actually... I think mostly quite a lot better than that one I showed you earlier on. And everybody loves ironing, don't they? I'm looking at my wife now, and she's <laughs> shaking her head. So apart from being a chief cook and bottle washer, a domestic robot could, I mean it will, I think, look after us in other ways. I mean, they can watch our health, that's clear. Uh, they could keep us company if we're alone, and they, uh, not just by being something that talks back to you when you speak to it, but like our phones and our computers, they can help us communicate with other people as well. And they can make up for our deficiencies as we age. How about a doctor? There's a few doctors in here, I know. Um, maybe for diagnosis and decision assistance, perhaps? 
uh, which is really getting hold of all the data you need, I suppose. I don't know, I'm not a doctor. Um, or tackling routine issues. I mean, if we went through an AI first so that we could be helped out without having to see our GP in person, just maybe when we really need to see our GP in person, it might be easier to get an appointment. Um, sorry, that sounded a bit bitter. <laughs> um, how about finance? Well, this is already happening. Um, there are already um, AI, AIs are already doing a lot of the trading on the stock market, and I think there's at least one person here who works in that area. Um, and you can get these sort of um, apps which you can download onto your computer that will help you make, that's an AI that will give you assistance in making, um, making financial decisions of your own. Um, I've never tried any, but <laughs> I wonder if they work. I don't know. Um, if anyone's used it, do let me know. <laughs> How about engineer or inventor? That's my job. Um, it, <laughs> we've been automating our work with computer-aided design for 25 years. I mean, how long is it going to be before we have a, an inventing uh, AI? Probably not long. Um, how about teacher? Which was, we've got a few teachers here. Now, of course, computers have been used as teaching aids for a long time. Uh, I mean, especially in forms of games which are sort of designed to teach, teach you by stealth. Um, they tend to look like that. Um, but... Um, I, you know, in much the same way as an AI chases you through the internet with things that it thinks you might buy, uh, the, you see my next point, bullet point there, with things you might buy, an AI could anticipate the difficulties that a student's having and direct his or her learning in a more productive way. But good design is essential. Right? We're easily bored. Human beings are very easily bored. Uh, and there are a few things less inspiring than a, than a poor computer <laughs> interface. Another benefit, though, might be that computers might never have to mark another book. Just looking at a few teachers around the place. <laughs> they might be able to concentrate on those pupils who really need their help. What about artist? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. What about Church of England vicar? <laughs> you never know. Can you imagine Clive being replaced by an AI? I can only say that because he's not here. Uh, no, I mean, seriously, I mean, what if all human work could be done more, ch more cheaply and equally by a, um, equally well by a robot? I mean, is meaningful work destined to be the preserve of a lucky few? I mean, we're not meant to be idle. The Bible makes it absolutely clear that we're designed for work. Look, Genesis, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And Exodus, six days you shall labor and do all your work. You know, the vast majority could wind up living off the state while a few work just as hard as we do now and are so busy that they have no time to spend their vast earnings. We may, move, we may need to move towards a shorter working week, perhaps, um, to keep more people employed. Even so, there will be a lot of people who simply don't know enough to be economically useful. A machine could always do the work cheaper. And that, that is a worry. Okay, the implications. So many of these possibilities carry huge implications of safety and liability and so on. So who, who's responsible in an accident? Uh, what if an AI reacts in an unpredictable or damaging way, perhaps by crashing the stock market? Who pays? Who gains? 
On the other hand, we could share out the work that's left more equally, perhaps, giving us shorter working weeks, as I've just said, and more holidays. I mean, just 100 years ago, most people worked six-day weeks, not five, as we mostly do now. Uh, and hours in a week have also fallen. I know my boss is here somewhere. Um, <laughs> no, no. Um, there's, I've got an article, a link here, if anybody's interested um, afterwards, to, to, on a, an article from the US. Taking away drudgery and routine in some work might help humans perform their roles more effectively and more enjoyably. And working and living alongside robots could, will, make some people less isolated and our lives safer and more stimulating. Okay. Here's a question for everybody here. This is one of those questions I really don't have an answer to. I suspect I've, I've got prejudices, perhaps. Are there jobs that robots should never be allowed to do? Perhaps that's a good point for discussion. <laughs> Make a note and ask it afterwards or suggest some things afterwards. Okay, part two, is it safe? Um, um, this guy is, is Arnold Schwarzenegger being the Terminator. If anybody who hasn't seen the Terminator films, Arnie plays a killer robot who's sent back from the future by an AI called Skynet that runs the world's weapon systems and, turn, and turns them on humanity. Arnie, who is the Terminator, sent back to kill the mother of the leader of a rebellion against Skynet in the future, before he's born. It all makes sense. The, the exact detailed operation of an, of an AI is not really understood in the way that a, a, a mechanical machine is understood, you know, in the sense that we can understand how a conventional computer program works. So we can't verify that it will work under all circumstances. I mean, that, not least, that is because that's exactly why we use an AI, uh, because we don't know all the situations we're going to put this thing into, and we want it to be flexible. So, you know, you sort of go for one thing, and you, there's a penalty to pay. Uh, but the question is, could we make this happen by accident? Okay, so there's a lot of thought going being applied right now into the safety of autonomous vehicles, which happens to be the sort of area I've been looking at. Um, autonomous vehicles are potentially much safer than human-driven ones. They can see more because they've got different kinds of sensor. I mean, we've got eyes, but, a, but a, uh, an autonomous vehicle can have uh, radar, it can have a thing called LIDAR, which uses a laser beam, an infrared laser beam, a bit like ra radar, but similar. And it can have cameras that look all around the car at once. I mean, they should be able to react a lot faster than a human being. So, what has it got to do? Don't underestimate how complex this problem is. <clears throat> uh, this is what needs to happen in your, AI, in your autonomous vehicle. It's got to look at the scene it's looking at, which is the, a road scene. It's got to measure the ranges, the directions, and speeds of everything in that scene. It's got to map the environment around the vehicle. It's got to predict the motions of everything that it sees in that environment. And it's got to understand the behaviours of people and vehicles and animals and anything else. And then it's got to decide what to do, and it's got to do that 25 times a second. Right? Now, humans, when we drive, don't do that. We make assumptions. We rely on similar situations we've seen before. We call that experience. And we guess, and we make mistakes. Okay, the other morning, this is not a mistake, the other morning I was driving to work in Bracknell, and they had a real-life example of this sort, of this sort of situation. I was approaching a pedestrian crossing, and there was a woman standing by the crossing with a pushchair. The pushchair was pointing out towards the crossing, right? 
she was standing still, and she made no move to cross the road after a previous car had driven past and before a long gap to me. So as I approached, and she still didn't move, and it was clear that she was looking in a different direction, should I drive over the crossing? Well, I did, and she survived. (laughs) So, just this once. Um, (laughs) So, if if your autonomous vehicle makes a mistake, whose fault is it? Is it yours? Or is it the car manufacturer? Or is it the people who made the camera or the computer? Who do we sue? (laughs) Seriously, though, what if someone is hurt by an autonomous vehicle? I mean, we're assured that travelling will be much safer when autonomous vehicles are ubiquitous, but I bet we'll be angry, very, very angry, when people do get hurt. There is something singularly horrifying about the possibility of being the victim of mechanical action. Very similar questions with slightly different points of reference will apply to respect to other applications of AI. So consider what our attitude to a mistake by one of these would be. Your AI doctor, your kid's AI teacher, your domestic appliance, or help, or valet, or your AI investment manager. Now, interestingly, work is being done to um, design training sets for AIs to teach them some form of ethics. The process starts with trying to measure, and I mean measure, what ethics are. As an example of how to test the ethical framework that people use, virtual reality and simulation games are used to put a human driver into a situation where they can't avoid an accident, but they have to choose which pedestrian to hit. Yeah, it sounds callous, doesn't it? But what's the alternative? And of course, it's an entirely artificial situation, and the participant knows this. So, and note also that the results might be culturally dependent. I mean, in one culture, somebody might choose to save the respected elderly person. In another culture, the innocent child. So it's not necessarily consistent wherever you are. But at least we're trying. Yeah? In, the, in the real world, rigid rules as well get in the way of decision-making. I mean, a zero-risk approach <clears throat> doesn't really work. Uh, And we, as human beings, doing things like this, we don't use a zero-risk approach. um, So consider the behaviour of pedestrians in real road situations, like that one I I had the other day. When someone's standing by a pedestrian crossing, we instinctively understand from body language how they're likely to move. Will they cross the road or not? Human drivers make predictions by watching behaviour. And without realising it, we weigh up the odds that people are going to do one thing rather than another. If we were to apply zero risk, a zero-risk approach, we wouldn't be able to act in real-life situations because there's always a risk that someone will not do as we expect them to. Now, consider an autonomous vehicle with a zero-risk um, paradigm or uh, algorithm in it. If it observes humans in a scene like the woman at the crossing I just described, and it, it, it um, predicts all the possible behaviours that might follow... There's always going to be some that result in an accident. The result will be a kind of ethical paralysis, preventing the vehicle taking any action with, a, uh, with, sufficiently, ro- with sufficiently low risk. It'll be stuck. Uh, and also, malicious humans could exploit the behaviour of autonomous vehicles, either for laughs or for worse. I mean, imagine a hold-up where someone stops a vehicle by stepping in front of it, then breaks into the car and robs the occupants. 
So I don't want to frighten anybody, but these are, these are things that we need to consider. Right. Okay, issue three. Human society is going to change. Uh, new technology changes us. I mean, consider uh, the printing press. Now, the printing press enabled rapid dissemination of ideas, and it drove the Reformation across Europe. It reduced the cost of books so that everybody could see a Bible, at least see one. So you remember the words of William Tyndale to a priest? If God spare my, my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plough to know more of the scriptures than you do. It was the printing press that made Tyndale's declaration come true. So where the Bible was translated into the local language, people rapidly learned to read so that they could read it themselves. The result was a huge leap in, in education and economic benefits that came from it. And the thoughts of great thinkers like Luther, Calvin, Galileo and Newton could be disseminated widely and advanced new, new knowledge and disciplines, like science, for example. And ultimately, the printing press led to the advances that followed um, industrial mechanisation. That is, I think, a spinning jenny, but other people might know better than me. Um, it changed, this changed the work, nature of work forever. It, it, it drove the move away from peasantry to employment. It brought about mass, mass education and kick-started the, the development of modern science. It propelled Great Britain into dominating the world's economy and trade for a century. It moved people off the land into cities and it resulted in new diseases and isms, chartism, liberalism, socialism. And all this lot together led to the next thing, which was fast and affordable transport. I couldn't get a picture of the real rocket. That's the nearest I could find. Um, this shrank the world, and it created tourism. Um, it dispersed families. And no longer would you only know people from just your own village. Computers. This is the Manchester Baby, which is one of the first um, electronic computers built in the University of Manchester after World War II. Um, uh, this, of course, changed the nature of work again. The, uh, it generated what we now call the information economy. Uh, we now have instant communication across the globe. I mean, you can speak to somebody in Australia and look at them. It's amazing. Um, everyone is in contact with everyone else all the time. We have new forms of theft. Great. New forms of censorship. Everyone's opinion can be heard, but no one dares say anything. <laughs> it's, it's also given us new opportunities for evangelism and also for making sure that I don't forget to turn up when I'm on the prayers rotor for Sunday evenings. <laughs> so we can only expect that there are going to be big changes in human behavior caused by the arrival of these very interactive, intelligent, and responsive devices. I mean, humans, being humans, will assimilate them into our social interactions and into our social groups. I'm just going down the pub with a robot. <laughs> this is going to change us. I mean, consider the effect that the mobile phones had on us, not just the teenagers. How many of us have put our smartphones on the table in front of us in a restaurant? Come on, admit it. <laughs> I have, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, human beings are compulsive communicators. Uh, and we can't help ourselves when we're given a device we can communicate through. How are we going to behave when we've got a device we can communicate with? It's, a, it's different, but it's, you know, we're going to use it. And then there is the elephant in the room, I think. 
Um, new technology, it's a sad fact, new technologies, media, are always exploited by the sex industry. I mean, some technologies actually became economically viable because they were used first for the dis distribution of pornography, like videotape. Um, the internet's no exception. Now, that's why we're worried about letting our kids loose on it. Now, of course, this is a sad reflection of what drives the world we live in. It would be naive to expect that our, that our use of robots is going to be any different. It's already happening. I'm not going to provide photos because if I search for them online, I'd be chased with them over all the time. With um, the internet and media have accelerated the sexualization of society. There's strong evidence that the easy availability of explicit pornography is changing the sexual expectations and behavior, especially of young men. Now, if a machine were to become available that could gratify every sexual desire and would do anything we asked of it, I'm sure that's, that would have very profound and a damaging effect on sexual behavior and relationships. Um, we need to be ready for that. I mean, AI is going to happen. It's happening already. We have to be ready for the challenge it's going to present us with. It's going to change the way we work. It will make our lives safer, but with new dangers. And it will change our societies. It will also change the way we think about ourselves. So there's more of that in part two, after a little explanation of how the technology works. Meanwhile, like I said, this book is well worth a read. Um, I think you might be able to pick one up on the, um, on the bookstore outside, and you should be able to get it finished over the coffee break. <laughs> That's the end of part one. Um, just before I hand back over to Graham, Graham, a couple of times you've mentioned this particular book that you're recommending, yep. but I don't think you've actually mentioned the title of it. Would you mind saying oh, what it is? Good thinking. It's called uh, The Robots Are Coming, Us, Them and God. Uh, it's by a chap called Nigel Cameron, who is... Uh, well, he's a writer on ethics and policy impacts of new technologies. He's a Scot who's lived in many years in the United States, taught at universities, founded a think tank in Washington, and write, written widely for both religious and secular markets. And it's, it's, only, it's a very short book. It, won't take, it really doesn't take long to read. Um, I wrote most of the talk before reading the book. I read the book and thought, well, it's, it agrees with everything I've said, but he's made a few extra really interesting points. So, the, so, you, so you've nicked a few of them, have you? I've right. nicked a few of them, yeah. Right. Um, but I think as a payback, I have to recommend his book, really, and it is very good, honestly. It's, a, it's, it's good. It, it covers a lot of this at a, a, at a good pace that, that, will, that will help understand. Right, well, thank you. Well, so I'll hand back over to Graham, and then at the end we'll have um, a couple of stick mics available. Um, so I'll pop back up at the end, try and handle uh, yeah. questions and things. And, it, um, and at that time, if you want to ask a question, just pop your hand up. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thank you all for coming back. That's, that's, that's encouraging. <laughs> um, this is how it works, okay? So, in a bit more detail. Uh, so, in the first half, I spoke about the implications of machine learning, and machine learning systems or artificial intelligence, about what those implications for our work, our society, and ourselves. In the second part... I'm going to say a little bit about how it works and then explore the possibility and implications of artificial consciousness. So I want to explain that uh, AIs are not really programmed, not in the sense that a computer, program, a computer is programmed, and that therefore we can't say exactly how they work. 
It might be a bit controversial if anybody works here in AI, but I'd stand by it, really. Uh, a computer program is, um, on a normal computer, is a list of instructions right, that are read and they're performed in order to control where the machine finds data, what to do with that data, and where to write the results of the operations it performs. The instructions are generally very simple. Read a number from here and there, add them together, write the results somewhere else, go back and do the same sequence again. And symbolically, that's what I've just described. Now, we use um, formalized notations, which we call computer languages, to make the construction of these sequences. So that's a, that's a, that's a line of a computer code. Um, to, um, to make the construction of these sequences into larger, more complex sequences, and we, to make them more productive. So to make the building of these things more productive, we, we write them in this, sort of, in this sort of symbolism. But essentially, they just do more of the same sort of thing. Right? So an ad operation is written like that. Um, so A and B are the inputs, and they're written on the right-hand side, which might, be, might not be very intuitive to, to a lot of people, but um, A and B are the inputs, and the operation that we're going to do is an ad in this case, and C is the output, and we write that somewhere else, right? That's a computer line of computer code. Um, and 100 ads looks like that. It's just more of the same sort of thing, right? But, I mean, it, basically, it's just one thing after another, right? It's, it's doing a, set, a, a, a series of understood, relatively simple instructions. Now, so even though the sequences may be very complicated, which they are quite often, the operations of a computer processor are always deterministic. Um, with the same data and program, the computer will always produce the same results. And now a lot of hours are spent testing programs to make sure that we understand how the program will behave and that it's correct. On the other hand, this, sorry, do you want to go? I'll, there you go. <laughs> I can give you the slides afterwards if you like. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> right. Okay, this is a human neuron. Um, now, our brains are made up of about 100 billion of these things in, an, in a vast network of, of interconnections. Um, now, Early artificial intelligence systems tried to imitate the behavior of these networks of biological neurons. And although the approach has changed a bit over the years, it's essentially what they do now. So an artificial neuron takes a number of signal inputs, these things, sorry, these things. Um, it uh, forms a, a weighted sum. So every one of these inputs is multiplied by a number on, on its input, a weight, and then they're all added up, and out comes an output at the other end. Um, obviously, that's a deterministic thing that you can, you can just do. It's a fairly simple operation. Now, by setting the values of those weights, the network can be conditioned um, or taught to give a particular output for a particular class of input. Okay. Now, um, the neurons then are connected in layers... So each one of these circles is a neuron. Each one of these things is an input to, to a neuron on this side and an output from this on this side. Right? And you have a different weight at each interconnection. 
And by changing those weights, that becomes your pro... That's, it's not program, it's the conditioning, it's the learning you set. So when you put a particular pattern in at this end, the, the, the neurons on the way through react in a different... Uh, in a, each one in a different way, producing a different output, and you get a particular pattern at the, at the output. So you might have a picture in at this end of, of a, an animal, and, uh, through a, and you'll need a lot more neurons than this to do this, um, and probably more layers. And at the output, you'll get dog or cat as, a, as, an, as, a, as an output, for example. So we set the values of the weights. That conditions the network to do something. It teaches it, if you like, to give a particular output for a particular input, for a particular type of input. Now, we use special algorithms to train the network, and we use many, many, many examples of the type of input you want it to detect or identify or the decision you want it to make. And then you adjust the weight over and over again to progressively make it more accurate. Now, if you're really interested in the detail, I'm sure somebody is, um, Actually, in a very, very simple explanation, if you really want to just have a quick look at the maths, this is a brilliant book for this. It takes a few hours to read with lots of diagrams and not much maths, honest. And it is, actually, it is actually pretty clear. You need a bit of maths to go with it, and you need to be interested in the subject, like I am. <laughs> um, okay. Um, and I'll t uh, it's called Neural Network Math, A Visual Introduction for Beginners by a chap called Michael Taylor. Come and have a look afterwards. Um, right, and if you really want detail and f a full understanding of this, ask me at the end and I'll point you at some other books or I'll go home and get more, more information on it. There's another book on there which I have not read yet but looks really interesting which I'll, I, I, I can show people at the end as well. Okay, it's important to note that... These devices are still deterministic or, or algorithmic. Uh, they're not, we don't really know exactly what's going on in detail. We, you, know, you can find out, but it's, sort of, it's hard to see the whole, if you like. They're not programmed. They're trained or conditioned, but they're still, they still, have, they're still set up to do a job, and if you give it, the, give it the input that's required, the right output will come out. <clears throat> they're still deterministic. That is uh, an important... It's a kind of limitation, in a way. So, and the reason we did that is because I want to talk about this big question. But first of all, this is a clip from my favourite film. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. <laughs> King's here. 
I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. Gentlemen's job, sir. I guess you're through, huh? Brilliant. Um, what's going on? Um, uh, in this clip, uh, Rutger Hauer is playing a, a, a replicant, an artificial life form, a Nexus 6 artificial life form called Roy Batty, and he's reached his pre programmed death. Um, it's an excuse to put a, a clip from my favourite film into it. Well, not quite, because it is actually significant. Um, the question is, is a really a true conscious machine possible? And what would the implications be if it is? I mean, it's long been a favourite subject in fiction and film. Even the Greek myths and Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare's got Caliban, which is really not much different to a Nexus 6, really. Um, is it possible that we could build an artificial person? Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's important to understand that machine learning systems, and this is the point of showing everybody how they work, that they are subject to mathematical analysis. They're, they're predictable, they're differentiable, is the sort of mathematical thing. It's a statement of mathematical simplicity, believe it or not. I mean, there's no indication that biological systems, like the one in here, are amenable to similar maths, and it's clear that they learn in a different way. We humans don't need lots of examples of different situations before being able to figure out how to respond to a new one. Neither does a fruit fly. I mean, a fruit fly's got about 135,000 neurons. Uh, it's much more flexible than any artificial system that's been built with that many artificial neurons. And that's been done. There is something else going on. Now, 
the mathematical physicist Roger Penrose in this wonderful book, which is hard work, but it's good. Um, he argues that um, there's something special about the physics of our brains that enables consciousness. But we can state that the human brain is capable of sustaining a consciousness, obviously, and that it is subject to and operates within a framework of physical law, because we all live in a physical universe. Right? So in principle, at least, it should be possible to construct a physical system that can support consciousness, because we've got one. Well, we've got several. There's several in there. <laughs> always, always flatter your audience, I think. <laughs> However, our picture of physical law is incomplete. I mean, there are several important parts that are incompatible or missing. I mean, gravity and quantum mechanics don't really fit together. There's all these problems like wave function collapse and the second law of thermodynamics. All that stuff sort of doesn't quite work together as it should do. Um, and there are mysteries, for want of a better word, uh, which, which are hard to, uh, to line up in, the, in, in physical... I mean, even the most advanced physicists haven't really got this far. Not even Stephen Hawking he could figure these things out. He made strides towards some of it, but he didn't figure, he didn't figure these things out. Now, Penrose, who was, a friend, who was a friend of Stephen Hawking's, he suggested that all these things need to be solved together and that from that we'll get a better understanding of consciousness. Or we may discover that we can't build a conscious machine. We don't know. Right. Nevertheless, and actually I agree with him, I don't think it's possible in my, in my opinion. However, um, because the implications are so huge, and as a thought experiment, let's assume that we can and will, will build conscious machines, because I might be wrong. I'm not... Well, you know, I don't know. So, if we did succeed... First of all, how would we actually know that we'd succeeded? Um, you may have heard of the Turing test. Um, it was suggested by the mathematician Alan Turing. He was a pioneer of computing and information theory. And the test is, in essence, very simple. If we can't tell whether an entity that we're interacting with is a human or a machine, or rather is a being or a machine, let's put it that way, no matter what we ask it, it is so that it is indistinguishable from a conscious entity, we should assume that it is a conscious entity. Um, and so, how would we frame that? I mean, I would look for wit and will and worry. I mean, by wit, I mean evidence of independent thought. That is, the ability to formulate ideas of its own. Now, we see that in very small children who invent words. They ask offbeat questions and unprompted questions. I remember my son, when he was a little boy, after he'd seen a pre-colour TV clip on TV, you know, when everything was in black and white, he asked me if I could remember the days when the whole world was in black and white. <laughs> Great. Um, and I remember being completely thrown by that question, thinking he thought of that all by himself, which he did. And here's another example, which you, you probably wouldn't normally give a second thought to, but it struck me the other day. In the office I work in, in the gents, this isn't going anywhere, <laughs> there are three taps at a trough sink. Right? So we've got a trough sink, there's a tap there and two taps at the outside. Um, 
Now, the other morning, the soap, the soap bottles had been put at the far end. Right? So I went to the middle tap and realised that I was out of reach. Right? Um, when I returned for a second visit, the, the, I didn't think to do this, right? which shows I'm not very bright. Somebody had taken the two things and put them in the middle, which is the sensible place to put them. Now, so what? Well, okay, it's not very complicated, but one of my colleagues must have looked at that and thought, oh, there's a, I've worked with a load of engineers, right? So this is the sort of thing we do. There's a, there's a problem there. I will solve it. Click. They did it, right? It's very simple, right? But the act of recognizing that there's a puzzle to be solved, it's a very simple one, but that is uniquely intelligent. Only human beings do that. I've never seen a dog do that, let's put it that way. Okay, by will, I mean the ability to make choices in its own right, like we do. By worry, and I, I'm, I'm stretching the alliterative bit here, okay, in the extremely broad sense of emotional and empathic responses, I mean the ability to anticipate the consequences of its own and others' actions, a response to the emotions and welfare of other beings, an appreciation of and an emotional response to beauty in nature, other creatures, art, music, and so on. I mean, we might sum these things up as conscience and compassion, or we might just say they're made in the image of God. Now, Nigel Cameron, in that excellent little book, put forward five dimensions of being made in the image of God, which, uh, sorry, in the likeness of God, um, and, they, and they're similar. They're reason, moral choice, i.e. free will, creativity, stewardship, it's our role to manage the earth, and relationship. So they're sort of similar to what I've just said, but put in a more um, less airy-fairy way, I suppose. So, with these dimensions in mind, what are the moral or ethical questions we must address? I mean, I think we need to think about this before we even get close to doing it. It'll be too late to wait until the machines are in charge. So, IMHO, in my humble opinion, which when you put it up there like that means I'm not being very humble, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, I think that if, if it's possible, uh, we will, one, not know how it works, at least not in detail. Uh, we will have to build in, build in some kind of quantum non-determinism or something like that into its operation as per what Penrose wrote, uh, I think we will not be able to program it. We won't be able to predict its behavior. Nor will we, can we be confident that it would share our sense of right and wrong. I mean, there's no reason to expect that it's going to share our sense of compassion or have a conscience as we understand it. That is a serious problem. So here are some thoughts. Um, but very few answers. Uh, this, this part is really speculative and... Uh, I, in some ways I've got no evidence for what I'm talking about here um, but you know, if we don't think about this stuff today, in 20 years time we're going to turn around and Arnie Schwarzenegger is going to be standing at our door <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, so these answers are the, the questions are provocative deliberately and they're intended to provoke some thought uh, I'm not going to try and offer any answers I don't think anyway so 
in Exodus, the Bible tells us, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Could we be deceived into believing that a machine is a person and treating it as such? I mean, could we inadvertently be making idols? The idols condemned in the Bible were inanimate, you know, stone or metal statues. Their modern counterparts will be responsive, and they could appear to be intelligent, sentient, wise, human, or even godlike. Will we turn to them for moral guidance? Will we become obedient to them? Computer says no. We already, we already obey computers in many ways, like your sat-nav. Is there a risk we might worship them? And actually, there's another equally serious risk, that we might be tempted to make a robot worship us. I mean, in some sense. In, that is setting ourselves up in God's place. Right. But, so, in Psalms... It says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Bible speaks of God's compassion, and as bearers of his image, we reflect this when we show compassion and mercy. So, is there a way that we could instill compassion and and conscience into a conscious machine? That's a bit of a tongue, um, tongue twister. And are emotions necessary for compassion or a conscience? I don't know. I'd, I'd like to know what people here think, actually, so it might be something we could... You know, I'd like to know if anyone's got some contribution about that, because we don't really know the answers to these, and what's the, what's the truth of it? Do you remember Data from Star Trek? He was an android, and he was incapable of feeling emotion, yet he had a very strong sense of right and wrong. He was unerringly good. He obviously had both compassion and a conscience. Is that really possible without feeling? Mm. On the other hand, he had a twin called Law, who was his evil twin. Mm. So what if, what if um, conscious machines turn out to be psychopathic? Why should we expect that a conscious machine will have any concern for the welfare of other beings? Uh, if it doesn't, if it's entirely self-centred, ruthless, merely logical and it has the capability to make powerful decisions, we may not find out until it's too late. Now, of course, this is the dystopian view that's set out in the Terminator films. All the world's weapons are put under under the control of a global artificial intelligence that reasons that humans are the cause of all the world's problems and so must be eradicated. Hmm. On the other hand, is it possible that a conscious machine could be made would be made in God's image. Now, only God can instill his image in a being. But it's not the case that the mind of such a robot would be the creation of the people that built it. They'll only have built the machine that it resides in. You see that? We might have built the thing that that can be... We can sort of teach it, but if it's got a mind, I'm not sure that we will have put it in there. So, you know... Like I said, this is very speculative. I'm not even sure we can build these things in the first place. But if we could, who put its mind in it? And therefore, if if it's got consciousness, if it's got a mind, 
Could it sin? If, if it's got free will, presumably it could sin. Yeah. Now, interestingly, I'm not alone in asking this question, thankfully. Uh, uh, a chap called Christopher Benick, who is the associate pastor at Providence Presbyterian Church in Florida, um, he wrote in Gizmodo in 2015, I don't see Christ's redemption limited to human beings. It's redemption of all creation, even AI. If, a, if AI is autonomous, then we should encourage it to participate in Christ's redemptive purposes in the world. That's, that, that's quite a controversial statement, to be honest, but you know, it's, a, it's worth a thought. And I think he's referring to that passage in Romans 8 where it says, For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay. Uh, Would a a conscious machine have rights? I mean, that surely depends on the answer to the previous question. Um, what does it mean? Does that mean the right not to be kept as slaves? And if, if it's not a slave, what have we created it for? And if it's not a slave, does it have the right for payments for its labour? And what do you pay a robot with? <laughs> Batteries? I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I, I conjecture. I mean, rewards, the rewards or payments that we're paid with sort of reward our lower functions, if you like, our basic needs and emotions rather than our higher functions, like intellect and spirituality. Does it have the right not to be switched off? Or does it get the vote? Will they get bored? What will they do then? (laughs) These are tricky, tricky questions. Finally, should we do it? It's long been an aspiration of mankind to create a race of powerful, a slave race of powerful but biddable creatures. I mean, literature reflects this. Shakespeare's Tempest with Caliban, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and Blade Runner, they all have the same thread running through them. We may be closer to making a Caliban or a Nexus 8 than we know. Are we ready for what it entails? Now, Ray Kurzweil, who is a modern prophet, has said this. Our sole responsibility is to produce something smarter than we are. Any problems beyond that are not ours to solve. I think that is dangerously complacent and wrong. Um, The leaders of the high-tech world... I I couldn't remember if I had Stephen Hawking on here, but I'm glad I have, actually... Leaders of the high-tech world don't agree either. Some urging caution. These guys on the left um, have all urged caution. And others are optimistic about the potential benefits, like Mark Zuckerberg and so on. Um, This article was in the Telegraph website a a few months ago. Now, I respect the opinions of these people, but I prefer to take my wisdom from elsewhere. In the Bible, in Revelation, there's a passage that could almost have been written with a conscious AI in mind. I've got to read it out. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also it causes all, both small and great, both, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I should make myself clear. I'm not suggesting that AIs are the devil incarnate. But the warning here is against setting up idols and urging us to wisdom. So finally, I want to leave you with the thoughts of Carrie Falkers, who said this in an article on a Christian view of artificial intelligence. In Genesis 3, there are a multitude of sins. Should I have clicked? I should have done so you can read it as well. Um, In Genesis 3, there are a multitude of sins wrapped into Adam and Eve's disobedience. But behind their disobedience was a basic sinful desire to achieve equality with God. The Bible teaches that we are to be godlike in a moral sense, not in an axiological sense, that is in terms of absolute value. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people are taught to imitate God in character, to be holy as I am holy. That's in Leviticus. This carries over into the New Testament, where Christians are exhorted to imitate Christ. But this moral obligation rests on a basic ontological fact. We ourselves are creature not God. We are to imitate God's moral nature precisely because he is God and we are not. All technology can be turned to good uses or evil. And the more powerful the technology, the greater the risks. It's hard to think of a technology with greater potential power than AI. We must be wise. Thank you. Graham, thanks very much for those uh, uh, two talks. Lots to think about there. Now, just while people are having a cogitate about what questions they might like to ask, so we've arranged for two people to stick... That was one of them turning on the mic. (laughs) We've stick mics to be available. uh, One to kind of patrol over this this half of the theatre. And I think we've got a second person for this half as well. Great, so you've got one over here. So... Who would like to ask a question? So oh, gentleman here, is that right? So no, no, go on. Black on. <laughs> yes, please, yes. It's a few hands shot up, actually, isn't it? Go ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, excellent um, talk. Thanks for that. Thank you. Um, there's an area that you didn't cover at all, which I think is quite scary and, and very important. Um, you said that a lot of technology is driven by pornography earlier. Yeah. I would suggest that even more technology is driven by military uses. And this is something that scares me quite a bit. Already we've got drones um, assassinating people. Currently those drones have a human being at the other end. Yeah. But we know that it doesn't have to have a human being at the other yeah. end already. They could do that on their own. Um, again, you know, it's a question without an answer, and I'm not expecting an answer from you, but maybe just throw that into the pot. Yeah, um, you're right. Uh, I, I don't work in, in any sort of military technology, so I don't know much about what's being done in that area. If I did, I probably wouldn't be allowed to speak about it. Um, but um, but uh, it's a... Um, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt, because we, uh, we've, seen, we've, also, we've seen Terminator, right? 
And actually, we're not far from having weapons that can run themselves. So yeah, it's certainly, certainly scary. How, how do we regulate that? I don't know. I mean, because it, there you have to have governments regulating one another. And um, I'm not sure that some governments who are willing to shove nerve gas around in cities in other cities, in, in cities in other countries, would be willing to be regulated. Very, very difficult. And that's the sort of thing that has to be done by the UN. Yeah. Thank you very much, Anya. Yes, Great. lady back here. Yes. Thanks. Uh, Graham, you've been saying um, that these are issues that we should be thinking about now. Is there a body within this whole industry that is actually thinking these things through? Are there people out there who might just be saying, actually, we don't think we should be going there? Because unfortunately, I think the human race has got a great kind of track record, great in inverted commas, i.e. not great record, of pressing ahead with things because they can do them before actually asking the question, should we be doing them? Uh the government do actually have a, um, uh, some sort of active committee on the ethics of artificial intelligence, which, is, which has been set up and is active. Um, and there are, there are, I've heard of other, I mean, uh, does anybody, anybody remember when John Wyatt, the, the, the doctor, came here to speak? Um, he was actually giving a talk similar to mine about three, three, three or four weeks ago. Um, uh, up in Cambridge and uh, at the Faraday Institute. So the organisations like the Faraday Institute are looking into mm. AI, the ethics of AI. Um, and to be fair to a lot of the companies working in this, many of them are, very, uh, are quite cautious about it. I don't think all of them are necessarily being cautious about it, but I think, um, yeah. I mean, uh, I know government is looking into it. I believe that there are other um, active groups, such as, the, such as um, Faraday Institute or Christians in Science, for example, seem to be showing, starting to show an interest in the subject. Uh, there's possibly a case for some activism. Um, Will the industry listen to them? <laughs> Sorry, open question. Who knows? Yeah. Well, they will if they're government and, they, and, they're, and they're forced to. Thank you. Another question? Gentleman back here, yes. And Duncan now. Hello, you didn't mention my favourite robot, namely Crichton from Red Dwarf. But, uh, <laughs> I think you could learn quite a lot from him, but uh, um, that apart, is there anybody looking into legal liability for artificial intelligence? Because it seems to me you could have a whole lot of solicitors drafting out terms and conditions for about 50 pages worth. I think if your uh, robot uh, Hoover runs amok and injures a guest in your house, is it your liability? Is it the person who programmed it? Is it the person who made it? Is it the person who sold it? Exactly. And so on. Yeah, well, I mentioned that earlier. Um, yeah. Yes, I think people are, I think a lot of commercial organisers, you know, companies are worried about whether they're going to get sued. So they're all trying to say it's, it's going to be the other people's fault. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's bound to be. Um, it's Certainly, the, the 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 technology companies will be concerned about that because that is one of the big worries, especially in the U.S. in the U.S. where the, the lawsuits can be so enormous. Um, 
there, is a, there is an ethical and legal framework which has to be put together. And this is the sort of thing that that government um, committee are looking into. Um, perhaps write your MP, ask them what they're doing. <laughs> Thank you. I think, Duncan, you had a question, yeah. didn't you? There's a report recently that the government are funding a company who I think we're using AI software that is going to be used to remove jihadist material from the, the internet. Do you have any views on how that might work and chances of success? Um, I think it could be quite effective at cutting most of it out. Um, I believe, uh, if anybody here works for one of the social media companies, they might, they might be able to correct me or expand on this a little bit, um, that that Facebook, for example, use AIs to detect uh, material that they need to remove um, uh, because they have so, such a huge volume of material that essentially it gets filtered through AIs. And if it's, if it's, it's suspect, it gets passed to some people to decide whether or not it's allowed to stay or not. Now, I don't know how effective that is, um, but I believe, that, I believe that's what they do. And if anybody here does work for, a, for one of those companies, perhaps they could enlighten us, but I believe that's what they do. So some of that's still, happening. Still, it's still relying on human intervention to make the final decision? A, a final decision, I think, yes. Yeah. Yes, question over here for me. Yeah. I'm just thinking through what you said about machines that learn and aren't programmed. For an um, AI that continually learns and is provided the environment to do that, it may stand to reason that an older machine would be wiser and more valuable than a younger one, so the reverse of what we currently see. And this then could lead to a situation of an incredibly valuable old machine having most power. Um, what would be the implications of that? Wow. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a great idea. Um, I think at the moment, learning isn't, done, isn't, isn't as clever as that. Because that sounds like the way humans learn. We gain experience as we, as we live. Um, there, is, uh, there is no protection at the moment for human beings getting so wise that they have to be kept alive forever, which is probably a good thing. Um, probably the same would be true in a robot. I suspect that when you get so wise, you become inflexible, maybe. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, th I think at the moment, learning algorithms don't work like that. Uh, but I think if we got towards, a, towards a, a machine that was truly conscious or getting close to being conscious, it would probably have to learn more like that. And that would be a very, that's a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good thought. You'd have to give it more and more memory, though, wouldn't you? You'd have to make it bigger and bigger. Have you seen Bicentennial Man? Oh, you need to watch it. It's a good film. And it, and it does cover, it does sort of, it does sort of cover that because, because the Robin Williams character starts off as a domestic robot, right? And he's clunky and, and he's, he's quite clever, but he's not, he's not human. But as he gets, old, as he gets older and, and wiser, he changes things. And that's it's brilliant. Very, it's very, it does actually ask that question in a different, framed in a different way. Yeah, thank you. Gentlemen on the, on the front of the pink chairs, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, you seem to be 
um, talking a lot about consciousness and lots of the problems that it creates. Um, is there any commercial value to an organization building a, com a conscious robot? I mean, I can understand an intelligent robot, but consciousness doesn't bring any commercial or political value, does it? If it's cheaper than a human being to employ, it is. Sorry, I, I would thought that would be a function of intelligence rather than consciousness. Well, if it's in, uh, uh, okay, if it's a, if it's a, if it's capable of doing something which a human, which a conscious human being could do, and it needs to be conscious in order to do it, and it's cheaper to operate than a human being. I'm sorry to use the word operate when it comes to a human being, but you know, if a company, if a, if an employer looks at it and says, you know what, I don't have to pay that robot. I'm going, to, I'm going to use a robot instead of, those, instead of that person. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, I can, see, I can see what you're saying. I can't think of an example of where somebody would need to make a conscious decision in a, in a job that an a intelligent, intelligent robot couldn't do. What if you're employing a lawyer? Okay, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, just, just behind that, see? And I'll come back to this gentleman. Uh, really interesting talk, Graham. Thanks. Where am I looking? Oh, sorry. sorry. Uh, there's a school of thought that says if the human race ever finds intelligent life or intelligence anywhere else in the universe, it could well be silicon life forms possibly descended from carbon life like us. It's a truly sobering thought that the legacy of our time in this universe might be a race of super-intelligent silicon life forms. As a physicist and a sci-fi fanatic, do you ever think about those kinds of things? What? Yeah, they make great films. <laughs> but but I, I, I would temper it with, with, although we've been talking about artificial consciousness, I'm still not convinced it's possible. So, and I've become, as I've got older, I've become less convinced that it's possible. Um, so... Yeah, I don't think I'll live to see it, but I'm not sure anybody in this room will either. Thank you. Is that what, yeah, is that what David you, down here. Okay, yeah, yeah, when you tell, yes. Oh. And I want to come to this gentleman over here afterwards. Yes. I'm, going to, I'm going to cheat because I've got the mic. Um, but I'm going to follow <laughs> up on the question here about the economics. Hmm. Well, should AIs ever be taxed so that there's a value to AIs compared to the human value that they're replacing? I think they will be. I, 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 the answer is, should they? Yes. Yeah. Will they? I think they will be. Thank you. Sorry, there's a gentleman here who is pleased. It's on the green seats, come forward. Second, Second row in, that's it. Second row in. Thank you. Graham, um, when I'm buying my self-driving car of the future, <laughs> what should I say to the salesman who says, and for an extra thousand pounds, sir, we can offer you an upgrade to the AI system that will increase the chance of you and your family surviving a crash at the expense of taking out more pedestrians. <laughs> um, well, okay. What diff how much better chances would it give, your, give, would it give, your, um, uh, give your family? 
No, but it cost hey, me a thousand pounds. Let's let's look let's look at this from the point of view of, of the utilitarian argument, right? We'll put aside the, the 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 really hard one, which is how do you weigh one human life up against another one? Because you can't really. But if you were to if you were to um, uh, just take the utilitarian argument, if it increases the chances of my family surviving by five percent, but increases the chance of me killing pedestrians by fifty percent, I wouldn't take it. So. That's, that's a purely utilitarian argument, on it? <laughs> Thank you. And we're getting close to time, aren't we? So maybe there's a chance for one last question, then we need to stop. One. So I'm right, up, right at the back there. Yes, please. Thank you. I'm sorry if I didn't manage to, uh, to get to you. Thanks for, thanks for excellent talk. Uh, one question you touched on but didn't expand because I suppose the answer is almost infinite is how uh, there's very few jobs that from a simple mechanical uh, point of view cannot be done better than the, better by robots either now or in the near future. And what will we as society do when there's nothing practical to do? Will we rely on our empathy or what, what, will, make a, what will make our lives worth living at, at that point when, there's no, when we don't have to do the drudgery uh, either physical or mental, what, what will we yeah. do as humans? Uh, and I think that's, that's the question I've been trying to get across, because I think that's the biggest question that we, we will have to answer. Um, because I think we will see that a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of our uh, work, and that doesn't just mean that the, the, the work of, um, of uh, people who work with their hands, um, uh, or, you know, or skilled with their hands or whatever, those sort of things have already gone to, to a lot of those have gone to automation. Um, people used to hand make furniture. Well, they don't anymore, do they? I mean, it's not, not done like that anymore. No, we're talking here about professional jobs and white collar, white collar jobs, for example. Um, uh, and I'm not just trying to defend the middle classes here because it's all these, as I said, it's conceivable that almost no job, almost no form of employment, could still be economically viable uh, if, if, if we let this technology go. And I think, inevitably, we're going to have to face that question where most of us will not have as much work to do. What are we going to do instead? Uh, and it might be that we still have some to do, in which case we have to share it out rather more thinly. Um, we can have nicer gardens, I suppose. Real, really quick. Okay, then yeah. we'll, we have to stop. Go I suppose it's just a yes/no. Do you think the reason that we won't have consciousness is? Be, I mean, you said earlier that we are physical beings, but actually, as Christians, we would say we're not physical beings purely. That there is spirit. Therefore, there won't be con uh, there won't be AI or, or consciousness because it's what's given us by God. Um, yes or no? I I think you're probably I think you're probably right. But I think the reasons behind that are built into the way, the way God's made the world. So. Great. On that note, stop there. So thank you very much for your questions, Graham. Thank you very much for a great talk. Thank you, Graham. Thank you.